Hello out there and welcome into another episode of Hockey Mountain High, your go-to avalanche podcast. I am your host, JJ Jerez. With me, of course, Arif Dean. We're here to break down the last two games for the Colorado Avalanche and, of course, look ahead at the uh, upcoming series with the LA Kings. So, you know, why waste any more time? Let's get right into it. That's what the people want. They come to listen to us talk avalanche, nothing more. So why not just get right into this team that looks like, you know, what we saw from the first two games, I would say, was kind of the tale of two different teams, right? I mean, off to a mediocre one and one start, but we still haven't fully seen who this Avalanche team really is. Uh, I'm going to agree with you and disagree with you at the same time. Uh, I will agree with the sense that, yeah, 1-1 one, one is, you know, technically mediocre. It's, it doesn't hurt to split against the Blues. Uh but I think we did see the Avalanche team, and it was the team that played in the second game. That's who this team is. You're not going to score eight goals every single game against you know one of the better teams in the league. But the type of game that they play, drawing penalties, rolling four lines, led by the top line, that's the Avalanche game. And having their defensemen jump into the play, now it's not just Gerard and Makar. you got a third guy named Devon Taves doing it, but... I agree. It was a mediocre start, you know, going from game to game. But at the same time, that second Avs game, the eight nothing win, that's who this team is, and that's who they can be. We'll get a little bit dig- deeper into that. I want to start with the four uh, one loss. So I guess let's just start with your blanket assessment of of game one. What went wrong for the Avalanche there in uh, that that game? I forget the exact quote, but Jared Bednar said something along the lines of, "We were expecting to win." kind of you know insinuating the expectation was we were going to win without actually putting in the work to do it and uh, I don't want to say the expectation and and the hype around this team got to their head but maybe that's what it is maybe it's the fact that hey we are the avalanche we are this cup contending star-studded team that's you know full of depth from first line to fourth line first pair to third pair and both goalies Uh, maybe to them it was just this idea that yeah we're gonna win no matter what happens and uh they came out and they got beat, schooled, I would say, by a more veteran and and cup championship team in the St. Louis Blues. Right. It's easy for a lot of people to kind of point at the fact that there was no preseason, right, and say, oh, well, you know, the Avalanche weren't quite, quite ready. It was like Brandon Sods, maybe third time on the no ice. No team got a preseason. Exactly. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. No excuses there. But, yeah, what I saw, I just saw a lot of sloppy play. You couldn't really hit tape to tape. You know, it looked like three passes in a row was was difficult for this team to achieve, and especially rolling through the neutral zone, they were just making it harder on themselves. You know, it felt more of a game where they beat themselves more so than the Blues beat them. Um, but I'm still hesitant to, you know, fully understand who this team is. Like you said, you were so confident to say that that second period in Game Two was exactly who this team is. But what we've seen so far is four periods of bad hockey one period of good hockey, and then another period of, I would say, you know, a toss-up because it was just a, against a, a first-year Vile Husso. So in regards to breaking down the second game, I wouldn't call the first period a bad period of hockey. The reason why that period looked bad is because it was coming after three periods of very underwhelming play in the first game. By the end of the first period in that second game, the Avalanche had gone over 75 minutes without scoring a goal. And that's kind of what happens when you sort of link it together with the previous game, those other three periods. It makes it look a lot worse, but I think they did a good job. I mean, Grubauer did make a few pretty good saves in that period. But for the most part, the Avalanche were kind of building this momentum, kind of looking like they're eventually going to score 
and it happened really early in the second period. That second period was absolutely amazing. I, I can't disagree with that one bit. The third period, I would I would say give them a little bit more credit just because when you're the team that goes up 4 nothing in a period, how often have we seen the Avalanche go up 4 nothing or 5 nothing and then win a game 5-3 because they just take the foot off the pedal in the third period? Whether it was Vili Huso or Jordan Binnington, they kept the foot on the gas. They scored four more goals, and and you got to give them credit for that. They didn't let this other team get back into it. They they kept it going, and and they scored four more goals. That's that's pretty crazy for a team coming out of a four nothing second period. Fair enough, I'll give you that. I, I I'm with that. And what I like to see, you know, is that first period. To me, it looked like they were struggling. I'll get a little bit deeper into that in a sec, but. What really sparked the avalanche, it looked like to me, was that Brandon Saad breakaway. You know, something we've been seeing. He didn't really do much with it. It was a good shot, a good attempt. It was a save. But, you know, just the move he made to get to the net, it was something that we've been waiting for Brandon Saad. So I know it's still kind of up in the air on how we fully feel about him and how he fits in. But, you know, I thought that was kind of the moment that sparked it was good to see because you want to see Brandon Saad definitely head in the same direction. But in the first period, what I saw from Colorado was – uh, just it, it, lo- it really looked to me that they were trying harder to get the puck in the corners and start cycling than it did that they were trying to get it to the net. But at the same time, while, yeah, that seems like a bad thing, I, I also think that's a testament to the commitment to their structure. Um, and, you know, you see it a lot. You also saw it later on in the, in the game one, during one of the power plays when Kadri got the assist. Um, you know, Kadri could have easily picked, taken the puck, and gone straight to the net. He had it in the corner. Rather, he looked straight up to the top at Kale McCarr, who was the, of course, the power play quarterback, if you if you will. And all things kind of go through him. He looked up there first, rather than going straight to the net, and it resulted in a goal. So I just I I think the Avalanche are really really buying into the structure. At times, almost where you know it's making them overthink things rather than you know go with their natural ability. But I like the commitment to their game plan. What's our favorite word pronounced by Canadians? It's process. And they were they were trusting the process. That's what they did. They went through the process of what it takes to beat a team like St. Louis. How do you solve a team that has a Ryan O'Reilly down the center? And then on defense, they have a Pareko. They have a, they have a Tory Krug. They have a Justin Falk. It's a team that's pretty much loaded with stars. So for the Avalanche, it was a matter of, okay, we got beat in the first game, even though they scored the first goal. Not only did we get beat, they weren't necessarily dominated. They were just sort of the life was choked out of them. There was zero life in the avalanche. Mm -hmm. The Blues did not by any means have the amount of chances in the first game that the Avs had in the second game. The avalanche, it was a clinic in the second game. The Blues in the first game was a defensive clinic. They choked the life out of the avalanche game. It was very dull. It was kind of depressing to watch, especially in an empty arena for opening night, which is usually a big thing. Uh, It was really different. But what they did was they trusted the process. They said, this is what we have to do to beat a team like this, and eventually we will solve them. And they did. And 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 I 100% agree with you on that Brandon Saad play because that was right after the goal that made it one to nothing, uh, or maybe it was a goal that made it two to nothing. But I'm, I'm pretty sure it was the first goal. It was right after one of those goals, right off the ensuing faceoff, Brandon Saad sort of sl- splits through the defenseman and goes in on a break. And obviously it was stopped. But what happened there was the first line clicked, And the second line came out and had a good scoring chance right away. And suddenly the Blues were on their heels. Suddenly they're like, okay, the Avalanche have awoken. The Beast, the Giant has awoken. And that's exactly what happened. Brandon Saad did not score, but everybody else in the top six did. And that's Kadri, that's Burakovsky, that's Rantanen. 
That's Landis Goggin. That's McKinnon. And those are those five guys that led the Avalanche offensively last year. Brandon Saad will, I, I, I think eventually he will catch up to them. It's going to take a couple games, but the entire top six came out to play and they trusted the process of what it takes to beat a team like St. Louis. Yeah, I mean, you had two different line combos there in game one and game two, and, and Jared Bednar felt like he had to get back to the Ranton and McKinnon-Landeskog line because if you remember last week before, when we were doing our season preview, I, I kind of mentioned, man, I don't think that second line is really clicking just yet. So if you're having that line not click and then the first line kind of struggle the way they did in game one, might as well bring back what you know and get that line back together, right? Yeah, I mean... The way that I see it now with the Avalanche, they have so much depth and so much firepower that it's it's okay to stack that top line. I'm not against it. I know the Burakovsky and McKinnon thing is always fun to watch, but Burakovsky and Kadri play well together, and Brandon Saad is no slouch either. And suddenly your third-line wingers are Nichushkin and Donskoy. Basically, the Avalanche right now, yes, it's a considerable drop from the first line to the second line and a considerable drop from the second line to the third line when you go from that Kadri to the Comfer line. But all three lines are talented. You're looking at an avalanche second line that's better than a lot of teams' first lines. You're looking at an avalanche third line that has better wingers than a lot of teams have in their top six. So I don't see any issue with stacking that top line. But at the same time, Bednar has this tool where he has so much depth and he has the ability to move around the lineup so much that it'll keep teams guessing and it'll keep coaches on their heels not really knowing what to expect. And I think that's a great thing to have. That's a great weapon to have eventually, you know, down the line in the future, they're going to have guys like Alex Newhook in the lineup too, where suddenly you have even more firepower. And, uh, you know, we saw that with Tampa Bay this year. We saw guys on Tampa Bay's third line, like Yanni Gord, like Blake Coleman, who on any given night you can stick into the top six. You can put on a top power play unit and give them a little bit of a spark. And that's what I like about this Avalanche lineup. You can really throw any combination. A lot of people on Twitter were, you know, saying that Bednar kind of, put his lines in a blender too quick and went back to the top line i say why not it's a two-game series every time you play a team if it doesn't work game one switch it up game two and if going back to what you know works in game two is what you need to do well it produced an eight nothing game and and four or five goals from that top line i think the one constant that you're trying to get going is the sod cadre combination right you really want the chemistry to get flowing between those two so until that gets established i don't think you really want to you know, play too much with the lines and just go with what you know with the top first line. Throw Andre Burakovsky on that right wing while, you know, Saad and, and Kadri figure their stuff out. Uh, I, I'm perfectly fine with that, but that's what you really want to see going forward is that chemistry start to click and you want to see a little bit more production out of the third and fourth lines. Well, I, I know they've been playing hard and haven't been playing bad. I, I'd like to see them start to contribute because really that game was carried by the top line and the power play. Yeah, exactly. And and then Giannis Donskoy had a goal that I think it was an even strength goal, but I mean at that point it was seven nothing or six nothing or whatever the heck it was. But I, I completely agree. The thing is about Brandon Saad and and I'm gonna bring this up strictly because, you know, being the one new forward and this is where I will say the short training camp, you know, could be in could be a hindrance on a player. It's when a player comes into a new team where pretty much everybody else on that forward core played together a year ago. So Last year, when Nazem Kadri was uh, was added to the Avalanche roster, uh, about 16 months ago for last year's opening night, which is crazy to think, the Avalanche played Calgary, Minnesota, and Boston, and they went three and zero in those games. Because if you remember, the Avs opened the 2019-20 season going four and zero at the during that homestand against Calgary, Minnesota, and Boston. Kadri had no points. He had four shots, and he played an average of 15 minutes and about 40 seconds a game. 
it wasn't until the fourth game that he finally scored a goal against Arizona. And coming out of that 4-0 homestand, Kadri had nothing but one goal on nine shots and nothing else. And then against Washington, that game where the Avalanche went up 4 or 5 nothing in the first period, that was when he had a three-point night and his season took off from there. It took Kadri a little bit of time to get acclimated, to get adjusted. And I can see the same thing happening with a player like Brandon Saad. And, and I think having Saad and Kadri together is a is a great idea. And it's great that Bednar is sticking with that because that's the exact type of pairing you want in the playoffs. That's your Perry and Getzlov in terms of mean, rugged playoff hockey, having a skilled centerman, a skilled winger that are both feisty and pesty. That's, that's what the Avalanche have in these two guys. And I think it's great that they're sitting there being a little bit more patient, waiting for that chemistry to click. Because whether it's Landeskog on the other wing, making it a three pair of three very tough, rugged guys, whether it's a skilled forward like Berikoski or whether you want to bring Rantanen down, you want to bring Donskoy up, Nachushkin up, those two playing together are going to feed off of each other's intensity and, and it's only going to set them up for success. I don't think it's only the chemistry between Saad and Kadri that we're waiting for, but I think Saad and the structure as well, right? The systems that Jared Bednar is running. Because like I kind of mentioned earlier, they're really showing a commitment to it. And when when they're committing to it, you're seeing success. Like, And it, it kind of seems like the hockey gods are just smiling down on the abs because like I pointed out, that play that Kadri made in the corner on the power play, he gets the assist on the goal, but the very next goal, he actually scored. And it was more of a, wow, he was blessed with a Nathan McKinnon rebound, right? It was the hockey gods yeah. kind of smiling down upon him. And then what happens in the <laughs> ensuing goal after that? McKinnon kind of gets, uh, you know, gets rewarded with, with a little bit of uh, scoring because he scored the goal after that. And then you saw it later with Devon Taves. He gets the assist on the seventh goal and then later goes on and scores the eighth. So, you know, I think maybe Saad, you know, it's a little theoretical, but if he just kind of commits more to the structure and gets more comfortable in the structures that they're running, I think he's going to naturally see some more success. Yeah, and, and Brandon Saad is a player that succeeded in a John Tortorella-run system in Columbus. He's a player that succeeded in a Joel Quinville-run system in Chicago, and those are very much uh, two tactful coaches that really implement strong system play and, and play a certain type of game. Not that they play the same game Jared Bednar plays, but... Brandon Saad has the hockey IQ to catch on to this. Uh, mm -hmm. And like I said, with a training camp, with a preseason, he would likely be there already. But this is where the Avalanche have that ad advantage of having 11 returning forwards and having five returning defensemen. Well, five when Eric Johnson's back in the lineup. Timmons played four games. But that's where that advantage comes in. It's these guys have played the exact same system. September feels like a long time ago, but it wasn't that long ago. And these guys sort of... Exited the Edmonton bubble, went home, the whole offseason happened, the weird thing happened, return to play came together, and then suddenly they all showed up together, 10 days later it's opening night. So it all happened really, really quickly, and the only two guys that really needed to acclimate were Taves and uh, and Brandon Saad. And you saw in Devon Taves' game, it took him about a game. The first game, I didn't really have much to think about him. I didn't think he played great, I didn't think he played bad. The second game, even before the scoring onslaught, because I remember making this comment early in the second period, I, I turned to Mike Chambers and I said, this is a smooth, skating, well-rounded defenseman, and he looks really good. He's just smooth. He doesn't make any mistakes. He makes the easy play every time, and he does a good job at just being a safe option. And that's what you need playing alongside an all-star like Kale McCarr. And and I'm I'm very, very impressed with Devon Taves' game and then seeing him on the power play with Sam Gerrard, who... Also, I have to compliment because his game has been take, has taken a next level in terms of confidence with the puck, which 
for the guy that does that spinner Rooney thing that he does, he already had a lot of confidence, but now he's starting to, you know, show more development as a 22 year old where suddenly the avalanche have all these weapons and Devon Taves just sort of makes them that much more stronger on the blue line. Yeah. It was crazy to see how much the St. Louis blues struggled with that second defenseman, uh, on the power play there, but sticking with Devon Taves, it, you know, it was also crazy to see how he ended up getting his first point and first goal before Brandon Saad. But, um, you know, I, you went back to game one, you didn't really notice him either direction. Let's not forget, he kind of took that hit to the head, which, you know, who yes. knows how he was feeling after that. And, you know, our friend Mike Chambers wrote an article today in the Denver Post kind of pointing out that no one really did anything about that on the avalanche. Now, I'm not sure it really called for much of a reaction, but in the time that they are going to need someone like that, we've talked about this before, there might be someone, you know, there might be a, a gap there in this team of someone who could stick up for the rest of the guys. Yeah, and that's that's the kind of thing where, you know, I, I had this conversation with Mike when he was putting the story together, and the conversation we had was, I kind of brought up the point, he said, you need a Kyle Clifford, you need a Ryan Reeves, and, and I disagreed, because the Avalanche have all this depth, but what the Avalanche also have in their top six, and pretty much on every line, uh, you know, if, if you want to consider JT Comfer a, fire, a fireball of a player, which even if you don't consider him, what they have on every line is physical, strong players. They have a Nathan McKinnon, they have a Brandon Saad, they have a Nazem Kadri, they have a Gabe Landeskog, and that's just in your top six. Like the only two guys in your top six that you wouldn't consider physical players are Rantanen and Burakovsky. And Rantanen is 6'4", 230 pounds and can hold, himself, can hold his own as well. And then on the third line, you have Nichushkin, who doesn't really use his body much, Donskoy, who's not really physical, Comfer, who can be when needed. And on the fourth line, you have Belmar, Calver, and, and whatever you want to make of Jost or O'Connor, whoever plays that final spot. Basically, the, 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 the debate that I had with Mike and the comment that I made is, as NHL fans, you cannot have it both ways. In the sense where you cannot look at a team like Toronto, who has a Matthews and a Marner and a Nylander and a Tavares, and say you've stacked your top six with skilled forwards that have no physicality, and then look at the Avalanche and say, well, yeah, their top six has physicality, but you don't want your top guys to be the ones playing physical. You can't have it both ways. You have to pick a lane. Do you want your top six to be the ones being physical? Do you want your top six to be the Corey Perrys, to be the Ryan Getzlavs? I'll use that example again. To be the Evgeny Malkins, who fought Zetterberg in a Stanley Cup final once. Do you want your top six to be those kind of guys? Or do you want them to strictly be skilled? Because what the Avalanche have that teams like Toronto don't have is a top six of guys that are powerful, that can hold their own, that can play a rough physical game. And because of that, I don't see much need for having many much of that in the bottom six. And I agree, yeah, Matt Calvert it would have been great to have him, you know, pre-concussion Matt Calvert, who's maybe going to be a little bit more... You know, uh, he's he's going to choose his battles. He's not going to jump into every play because you don't want him to get into another concussion, and he doesn't want to either. He's going to find a way to stay in the lineup. But when you have an Azam Kadri, when you have a Gabe Landeskog, when you have now a Brandon Saad and a Nathan McKinnon in your top six, I think you're underestimating just how strong those guys are. And when it push comes to shove in the playoffs, they will stick up for their teammates. Game one, Sammy Blake caught Devon Taves behind the net. Nobody was there to answer the bell. That's okay, but in, in, in the playoffs, when it comes time, you know Nazem Kadri will. You know Gabe Landeskog will. They have in the past, and they will again. It wasn't exactly the type of hit that you would expect someone to immediately answer the bell. I mean, maybe, but I don't think it was for certain, right? I mean, it even took the NHL. They had to go back and review it, and then they gave him the suspension. So it wasn't even an immediate, hey, 
you know, that was an egregious hit. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting philosophy to see from Jared Bednar, seeing as how, you know, his entire career he kind of spent as that tough guy, as the enforcer, as the guy that sticks up for the teammates. But if he thinks that he doesn't really need a guy like that, then, you know, I think you're right. I think he's buying into the fact that we've seen Nathan McKinnon stand up for his teammates, right? And he's so strong, he probably pump a lot of guys in this league. You know, obviously you don't want to see him up against Ryan Reeves or anything like that. But he, there's some guys he could definitely take out, I would say. I mean, the new age NHL is not necessarily standing up for your teammates by dropping the gloves. It's by going in there and answering the bell, by going in there and playing physical and sort of showing and giving that push and that shove to say, don't touch my teammate, don't mess with my teammate. And you have plenty of that. Let's look at Tampa Bay last year. I mean, they didn't necessarily have... Who, yeah, who did they have? They brought in right. guys at the deadline like Barclay Goodrow and Blake Coleman, who I would consider like Blake Coleman, I would consider him a more skilled Matt Calvert. Yeah, absolutely. These aren't necessarily Ryan Reeves or, or you know, going back to the Avalanche days. This isn't your Scott Parkers and your David Cochise, guys that are going to drop the gloves and fight. These are guys that are going to play a physical brand of hockey. That's all you want. You want to play a physical brand. You better believe if you're Andre Burakovsky and you get hit in the corner in game three of the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs, Nazem Kadri and Brandon Saad are going to be there to push whoever touches you, whether it's Sammy Blay or someone else. You better believe if you're Devon Taves and you get hit, no matter which line you're on. Is it the third line? Comfer will jump in. Chushkin will jump in. Is it the second line? It's Kadri and Saad. First line, McKinnon, Landeskog, even Rantanen. Fourth line, Belmar will be in there. Calvert will be in there. Hell, Tyson Joseph's kind of turned into a fireball. He'll be in there too. He won't do, you know, good or well, but he'll be in there. He'll be in there to support his team. It's just a matter of playing a physical brand of hockey. I don't think you need to have a Kyle Clifford who played four minutes and 57 seconds in that second game. I just think you need to have a physical brand of hockey. The Avalanche did not show it after that hit on Devon Taves. But like you said, that hit kind of flew under the radar. It wasn't something that in the moment you saw and it was instantly like, this is egregious. Let's stand up for our teammate. Uh, you know, when Mike wanted to write the story, it was before the second game happened is when he came up with the idea. He still went through with the story after the 8 nothing win, which is why a lot of people are kind of like, what do you mean we have to play a physical brand of hockey? They just scored eight goals. I see where he's coming from, but I also think the approach is wrong. The Avalanche have those physical players. It's just a matter of letting them be those physical guys. Like I said, you cannot have it both ways. You can't look at Toronto and say they have no physicality in their top six and then look at the Avalanche and say they do, but let's not let them use it and let's put it in their bottom six. And where are you going to have the skilled guys? You're just going to have 12 fireballs out there? I don't I don't understand the logic. I also think there's a secret weapon, too, that we kind of forget about, and that's Ryan Graves. I think he's a lot tougher than we give him credit for, and I think he could step up and do some damage if he's really needed to. Not to mention Eric Johnson, you know, he might not be wanting to fight here and there, but, you know, he's still probably one of the stronger and bigger guys on the team that will stick up for his squad. So, you know, you, you said it. They, they've got a lot of really strong guys that can if they have to, but that's not the goal here, right? We're... Uh, looking to, to be so fast that teams can't even catch you to, to fight you. Um, so that that's kind of the way I look at that article. And, was and was let's Mike getting it, a lot of backlash? He he was getting a little bit of backlash on Twitter just because it came after an eight nothing victory. And if you sure. don't press on if you don't press on the article and read the points he was making, which were valid points, Matt Calvert mm -hmm. is not the same guy that he you know it's not that he's not the same guy. He doesn't want to play the same brand of hockey to sort of save himself from being on the injury reserve again. I but, you know, if you, if you look at that article and you look at the title that says the Avalanche needed deterrent and that's what puts them behind Vegas and St. Louis after beating St. Louis 8 nothing, yeah, you can see why it 
you're going to get backlash before somebody presses on the article. Uh, but going back to the avalanche, I mean, how many guys in the NHL are actually still left where you're not going to want to drop the gloves against them? We saw Zadorov last season's opening night against Milan Lucic. I don't know if you remember that one where Lucic was sort of feeding him and Zadorov just like, no, I'm not doing it. It happened with Landeskog the season before, I think also against Lucic, if I remember correctly, where, yeah, Milan Lucic is one of those guys. You're not going to drop the gloves with him. Ryan Reeves might be another one. Who else? Maybe Tom Wilson? Because if it's Brad Marchand, somebody will drop the gloves with him. If it's one of the Kachuk brothers, somebody will drop the gloves with him. The guys that are you know, dropping Landis the gloves. Landis got ditching for that. Yeah, exactly. Especially guys. with those guys. <laughs> yeah. The guys that drop the gloves nowadays in the NHL are not six foot six. They're not 240 pounds. They're not your your heavyweights, your George Larocque and your, and your uh, Todd Fedoric and your Colton Orris. It's not those guys anymore. The Avalanche have plenty of guys that are willing combatants and we missed another one in number 28. Ian Cole's dropped the gloves quite a few times with the Avalanche in his career, and he's not going to shy away from it either. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, yeah, I just wanted to talk about it. It's not that I really felt strongly one direction or the other. I just felt it was a good article considering, you know, the De- Devontae's yeah. hit, and then he kind of, you know, showed up in game two after not really being seen game one. I thought it was appropriate. But I wanted to turn and look at the uh, power play. We talked about how big of a role that played in the victory, the eight nothing. They went five for seven on the power play. What would what what would you credit that to? What was that success on the power play about? That was the hockey gods finally rewarding this damn team with a good day on the power play. Because how many times I mean I'm making a joke there, but how many times last year did we look at this team and say I don't understand how they don't score three power play goals a game? And then Edmonton was operating at a record-breaking or really impressive 35%, and they've added Tyson Berry to that. And you look at Edmonton, you say, yeah, they have a Dreisaitl, they have a McDavid, they have a Nugent Hopkins. And then you look at the Avalanche and say, they have the same weapons. Why is this not working? Suddenly it's working. And I think you picked up on this. uh, I forget when you mentioned this. Was it you? Maybe it was Mike. Somebody mentioned to me that their power play now, they're not really standing around and waiting for the play to happen. They're cycling. I think that was you. Nathan McKinnon was cycling. He wasn't really sticking in that one spot waiting for the one-timer. And then we talked about how the one-timer to Miko Rantanen, it got old. People started to figure it out. Well, how did Miko Rantanen score his goal? One-timer. One-timer from the circle down on one knee into a wide open net. And the reason why they were able to do that is because they were cycling the puck. Nobody expected Rantanen to be waiting there like, you know, Ovi does in, in, in the Ovi office or whatever you want to call it. He was cycling and then he found his spot. McKinnon found him, I think it was, that passed it to him or maybe Makar. Yep. It was McKinnon. And it was a wide open net down on one knee. It was it was that patented Rantanen goal that teams had figured out. Suddenly, became a weapon again. So that's what it is. And I think the second unit, the addition of Devon Taves gives them that extra spark that they never had before. And I think there's two reasons why. Number one, Sam Gerrard is no longer the only guy that's that's really pulling that that uh, that power play anymore. But at the same time, Sam Gerrard has become a lot more confident. Speaking of which, in regards to Sam Gerrard, there was the power play goal that Devon Taves scored. If you go back and watch that play, he schooled the Blues. He really made them look bad because he cycled the puck. I believe he dropped it to Taves and got it back. Then he sent it cross ice to Burakovsky, and Burakovsky sent it cross ice back to Ta- back to Gerard. And then he circled behind Taves, gave him a drop pass, slap shot goal. And if you watch that play, it was a very good 
confident play by Sam Gerrard to keep his feet moving, to keep going, keep the teams guessing. And there was just a lot of confidence. And I think if the Avalanche's second unit can have that kind of weapon on it in terms of Gerrard and Taves both on the point, suddenly you have two very strong units. And that's where I was going to go where who I credit the success for because they went five for seven in game one. They went one for four or five for seven in game two, one for four in game one. So they've got six power play goals. However, half of those power play goals were scored by the second unit. I love what the second unit's doing yeah. right now. And, you know, it's just throwing teams off. Like I mentioned last week, the, just the switching up the, the idea ideology behind the power play structures is just throwing teams off. And you could see it. If you watch the replay of the goals, St. Louis looks so lost when – Power play two is out there. They have no idea where to go. They have no idea who to cover. And that's why Devon Taves on his one-timer was so wide open because the two Blues forwards, one was guarding Gerard on on the side and the other one was sucked in so far that he wasn't paying attention. So, you know, that, that little just twist in the different structures I think is genius. But, uh, yeah, the p- power play one was, was awesome. And they've been awesome. You know, I remember tweeting about it the day before game one and you and I talked about it on the podcast that night of how just snappy they looked and how quick they looked and how great it was to see McKinnon moving around and they were so successful against their own teammates which sure you know it's just their own teammates but it just looked like such a good power play it was a little bit baffling to me that they were they struggled to get it going in game one but of course once we saw it in game two I was like ah yeah that's the power play I expect yeah and that's the cool thing about the power play the second unit scoring so many goals it's exactly what I had asked Jared Bednar before game one where he said that he uses his top power play unit for about 90 seconds, which we've seen him do for the last few years. His top unit gets Mm -hmm. 90 seconds. His bottom unit gets 30 seconds. It's usually the way it works if it gets to the point where the second unit needs to be out there. But I think slowly but surely, you're going to get to a point with Jared Bednar where he has so much confidence and so much skill in that second unit between Burakovsky, between Saad, between Taves, Gerard, and insert centerman here, be it Nichushkin or be it Comfer. There's so much skill and confidence in that second unit that you can start to implement a system like Mike Babcock used to with the Red Wings or with the Maple Leafs, where whichever unit has the guys that are clicking are the guys that are going to start a power play. So if you have a game where Burakovsky and Kadri are killing, or not Kadri, Burakovsky and Sod are having a hell of a game, why not start with that second unit? Suddenly you have a Devon Taves who was a top power play guy on an Eastern Conference final team last season, and you have Sam Gerrard who's probably going to put up a 40-point pace in a full, you know, well, 30-point pace in 56 games this year. Why not do that? And that's kind of this this new found weapon that the Avalanche have is two very strong, willing units. And uh, if you're Bednar, you should have a good power play every game. You should have one of those two units clicking, and you should be scoring this many goals. Uh, next thing I wanted to talk about, I'm going to ask you the question, and then I'll give the setup, and that's, did the Blues lose this game or did the Avs take it, right? You know, w- wait, let me give you the setup now while you think about it too, right? Let's hear it. And I really, the the reason I think about that is this, like I mentioned last podcast, I'm curious to see how the NHL season comes with these game with these two game sets, right? And how the second game is probably going to look a lot different from the first game. And I feel like, especially at altitude, the road team, if they steal the first game, chances are they're going to lose that second game. So I wonder how much that came into play because I know altitude, some people poo-poo the idea and some people really buy into it. But, you know, it was right about the second period where the St. Louis Blues kind of seemed to have lost their legs. So did the Blues lose the game or did the Avs go and steal it? 
Take it. I'm going to steal it. I'm, I'm going to say the avalanche took it. And I'm going to go back to what we said in the beginning where the avalanche were shooting themselves in the foot the first game. Three of the four goals were the direct result of turnovers. There were no turnovers from the avalanche and blues second game. There was strong forechecking. There was uh, pressure, pressure, pressure from the avalanche forwards. Uh, and, and it was a clinic. It was an offensive clinic by the Avs that you didn't see from the Blues in the first game. Now, just looking at the stats here in, in, in game one, the game that the Blues took four to one, they had three takeaways and two giveaways. The Avalanche had seven take, uh, seven giveaways. So they gave they turned over the puck seven times compared to the Blues' two. In the second game, the Blues gave away the puck six times, the Avalanche three. So it was a little bit closer. But in the second game, the Avalanche outshot the Blues 38-21. to 21. The Avalanche did not have many goals that were the direct result of turnovers. They had goals that were the direct result of hardworking plays that led to penalties, that led to power plays, that led to you're going to shoot yourself in the foot if you keep hooking and grabbing and holding. And those kinds of penalties are always my favorite to look at. It's the holds. It's the hooks. It's, it's, the, it's the infractions that are the result of... It's roughing, interference, hooking, slashing, holding. Those are the ones where it's the direct result of a player trailing behind and having no other choice but to draw, but to take a penalty. And those are the result of plays that come when you overpower a team, when you suddenly are one step ahead of them every time. And, you know, if McKinnon passes you, what are you going to do? You're going to turn around. You're going to hook him. You're going to hold him. You're going to slash him. You're going to try to slow him down. So it were hard. they were hard-working penalties that the Avalanche were drawing. They were not the results of Blues turnovers. So in the first game, yes, I absolutely agree with Jared Bednar when he said it wasn't necessarily the Blues that won. It was us that lost. And he's mentioned it over and over again. He said it during pra- after practice on Thursday. He said it morning skate Friday, he said, it's not the fact that we lost. It's how we lost and how we played that upsets me and that bothers me. And then in the second game, they played out. They came out and played strong. And I don't think even from the Blues' standpoint that St. Louis, you know, media and writers and journalists and fans look at that game and say, St. Louis lost this game. They look at that game and say, the Avalanche put on a clinic. So I would say, yes, the second game, my very long answer to your question is the Avalanche won that second game. I like that. I like that. And, you know, I think my question at the beginning is, who is this team really? I think you and I breaking it down, you're really helping me see more into who this team is. And it seems like they are. it was just a team that was trying to figure it out. And maybe, you know, they've turned a corner and, and are going to keep figuring it out. I hope it's not just a circumstance of schedule that the, the Blues lost. But, you know, I still think the one-and-one one start is decently, you know, I think it's fair to say mediocre. And the reason I say that is because, we're comparing it a lot to baseball series is right this year right series is is that the plural for series or is it just series all right the series we're comparing it to baseball series Uh, (laughs) um that's that just sounds weird but in baseball you know the team the manager of the team breaks breaks the schedule down and basically says all right we got to win these series you know if we if we lose one game you know two one whatever you got to win the series. Well, tying the series isn't going to get you anywhere. So you got to make sure if you're the Avalanche that you're you're taking care of series that matter and you're winning more series than you're tying series, right? You can't go through the whole series just go or the whole season going one and one. Got to take care of the series is. Yeah. Series is is. And and <laughs> that that was I I applaud you cuz that was a lot of <laughs> that was a word jumble. That was a lot of things that were hard to say. 
If that was me, I would have screwed it up even more because I have like an <laughs> undercover lisp that starts to come out when I say words like series over and over again. But I, I agree with you in that sense. I mean, I mean, the difference between what the Avalanche and what the NHL is doing now compared to baseball is these are all two-game series. There's one three, there's a few fours, but for the most part, they're twos. And even the fours, you can look at them and say it's not really fours, it's two twos because you have two at home and then there's a break in the schedule and then two on the road. Uh, that's the way that they're doing it against Vegas, for example, next next month. So I think that it is important to win as many series as possible, but I think the biggest thing to take away from this is, number one, it's the first series of the season. If you come out of these next four games, playing in California for four games, and you split those you have an issue. If you split both of them, you have a big issue. If you split one, well, it better be the second one after come, going into LA and winning these next two games and really putting the foot down on this on this division and saying that we are the more dominant team. You want to make sure that you're winning as many of the series that you're expected to win. And when it comes to those series against St. Louis and Vegas, which are just two of the seven teams that are really going to give you a challenge are those two, you just want to make sure you're not losing as many series as you are winning and tying. Obviously, you want to win more than you want to tie. You don't want to go 4-4 four and four against St. Louis and 4-4 four four against Vegas. You want to really put the foot down and say that we are the more dominant. We are the better team. We are going to win this division. But I think judging by how they played in that first series and the fact that Vegas didn't have to play a St. Louis or a Colorado, it was Colorado and St. Louis that had to play each other. I don't want to necessarily say St. Louis is happy with losing 8 nothing, or the Avalanche are happy with their opening night performance, but I think both of those teams are happy coming out of that saying, yeah, we played one of the better teams, and we came out 1-1. One and one. Well, that being said, let's go ahead and look ahead at the next series, and that's the LA Kings, like you said. They got robbed last night, and you know they kind of should have won the game before that too, so they're starting 0-0-2. Um, you know, but I think any if you the Avalanche, you you got to be really careful because they're going to be an angry team. They're going to be a hungry team, and anything less than two wins in LA, I think, is a disappointment. I agree with that. And both LA and Anaheim kind of had the same thing happen to them. For LA, they were both in overtime, and for Anaheim, I think they were both in regulation or one in regulation, one in overtime. And it was that LA had two games where they were beating Minnesota in the third period, and they blew two goal leads. And Anaheim had two games where they had a chance to close out the Vegas Golden Knights in the third period, but didn't. The second game, they actually had a lead that they gave up late uh, with with about a minute 20 left and then gave up the game-winning goal seven seconds into overtime. So both of those guys, those are the two teams the Avalanche are playing. They have not won a game combined out of four chances, but they gave Vegas and Minnesota a fight. But at the same time, if you're the Avalanche and you're playing the Kings, you are not the Minnesota Wild with an exciting player named Kaprizov. You are the Colorado Avalanche with five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. List your number amount of weapons that the Minnesota Wild do not have. Uh, not the Wild, the Kings. Jesus. Moral of the story, yes, I absolutely agree with you. They need to go 2-0. They need to close out the series and win both games. And then you can move on to the next one and say the same thing about Anaheim. But I, I see no reason why the Avalanche can't go 2-0, especially playing in a city that usually they do struggle in. But it's an empty arena. It's a bubble life. It's 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 pretty much a moving bubble, as it, as Terry Fry called it today with, with his uh, in the press conference with Jared Bednar. It's a moving bubble. There is no home ice advantage. The only advantage is sleeping in your bed compared to sleeping in a hotel room with fluffed up pillows. That's pretty much the only difference now. So the Avalanche should go 2-0, and that is the expectation. 
Yeah, the LA Kings have the recipe to beat the Colorado Avalanche, but this year they just can't allow it. They good teams have to beat the bad teams, and they have to beat them bad, and they have to show who the dominant team in this division really is. They got to take advantage of these weak points in the schedule because it's such a quick season. They don't have time for these slip-ups. There's no time for tough stretches. There's only time to display your dominance and keep your foot on the throat of everyone that you can. So I, I honestly, I think I need them to come home from this four game roadie five Oh and one or five, five, one and Oh, I agree. I, there's no reason why you can't expect them to come out, uh, come out of California beating both of those teams. And then the California run continues because their next two home games are going to be against the Sharks. But now we're looking way ahead. Right now, the challenge is the LA Kings, and it's making sure that somebody like Jonathan Quick does not steal a game from you. We saw him do it, and we saw Cal Peterson do it. I mean, they did it in the outdoor game last year, too. We saw the Kings come in and choke the life out of the Avalanche. You can't let that happen this season. So what are some things in the uh, upcoming LA Kings series that you'd like to see from Colorado to you know keep the progress moving forward and, and keep... Your, uh, you know, keep your optimism high. You need to win the games and you need to win them outright. I think the biggest problem, and I'm going to go back to the Toronto Maple Leafs, the biggest problem the Leafs have and have had for these last few years, and this is very reminiscent of the Avalanche's days when they had Patrick Waugh's coach. Going back to those Avs days and the Toronto Maple Leafs now, they struggle to beat the teams that they should beat outright to beat them clear to be to to really show that they're the better team the toronto maple leafs had to play the ottawa senators this weekend they lost the first game which was a very very bad loss the second game they beat them three to two with ottawa pulling their goalie after tim stutzla made it three to two scoring his first career goal and having chances in the end all the way up to the final buzzer and toronto escaped with a victory austin matthews and john Tavares and william nylander and mitch marner all had to play 20 plus minutes if you're the Avalanche and you're playing a team like the LA Kings, who you're supposed to be a lot better than, just like Toronto compared to Ottawa, you need to be able to win, again, not necessarily 8 nothing, but you need to be able to win in a, in a way where when it comes time for the third period, you can rest your top guys, which is what the Avs did against the Blues. Eventually, they had that power play unit where Ian Cole and Belmar was yeah. on there. Ryan Graves is on the PP at the end of the game. But uh, McKinnon played less than 15 minutes. Landeskog played around that. Rantanen played around that. The Avalanche were able to rest their stars because going into the third and then, you know, by the time they got to the halfway point of the third, the game was far away, you know, was way out of reach. And that's what the Avalanche need. You cannot play a game like they did in the outdoor game at Air Force where, you know, them and the LA Kings are exchanging, well, not really exchanging chances, but are, you know, deadlock 0-0, 1-0, and then losing 2-1. You don't want to be playing those games against L.A. You want to be playing those games against Vegas, against St. Louis, maybe Minnesota, maybe San Jose. But with the L.A. Kings, in order to continue that process and to continue to grow, you need to kill this team. So you're saying you don't want to just see wins. You want to see beatdowns. Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily need to be a beatdown. It can be a game where you take a 2 nothing lead after the first. You make it 3 nothing after the second or 3-1 to one, or 4-2. to two. And you just sort of never trail behind. You never have to sit there and worry about a potential comeback or uh, a potential come from behind. You take the lead early, you assert your status, and you keep that going the whole game. That's what I mean. There's never a worry. Imagine taking the avalanche money line or taking the minus one and a half and never having to worry about the game. That's pretty much what needs to happen. 
that's just not the way my luck goes. But uh, yeah. what I need to see from the Avalanche, I want to see a five-on-five goal from somebody on that second line, whether it's Burkowski, Kadri, or Saad. I know Burkowski has two already, but they're both power play goals. So yep. I want to see a five-on-five goal, and, man, I sure would like to – see it have it be sod i want to see his first goal in an av sweater here and you know it's time for him to really get things going as we kind of you know hammered into the ground earlier yeah i mean that was a hell of a play that he had that almost you know when he broke through the defenseman i think it was tory krug on that play as well it was a pretty good defenseman uh but I, I agree i'd love to see him score it's hard to really judge the avalanche's five on five play right now because you know in terms of offensive production because the first game they had one goal and it was on the pp the second game it was a power play clinic but the reason why they had so many power plays is because they were dominant five on five so it's kind of you know it goes both ways but yeah i agree with you i mean the avalanche are one of the better five on five teams in the league they were last season at least and they brought back the same roster so i expect them to really take off this year and uh I think Brandon Scott Brandon Scott scores Tuesday. I'm going to go ahead and throw that out there. I like it. I like it. And then we got Eric Johnson and Byron back getting back into the swing of things, which you know is exciting for Avs fans. But has Connor Timmins' play in the first two games warranted excitement for EJ and Byram's return, or do you are you are you pumped for these guys to at least get their name in the hat? I'm going to say yes to both of those. Connor Timmins has been outstanding. He deserves to be a top six defenseman. And then adding Byram and Johnson, who both likely also deserve to be top six defensemen, just makes me all giddy inside because this team is loaded on the back end. There's a very, very big possibility, and I said this a few weeks ago, that Ian Cole is your number seven or your number eight defenseman through no fault of his own. Literally through no fault of his own. Ian Cole has done nothing to warrant him coming out of the lineup. But when you look at how Connor Timmins has played, it's hard to take him out of the lineup either. When you look at how Ryan Graves has played, it's hard to take him out of the lineup. And then you're not going to take out Gerard, McCarr, and Taves. Obviously, injuries will happen down the line. But the Avalanche are stacked, and I think Connor Timmins has done an excellent job. He was sent down, and Jared Bednar said today that that was just for cap implications. The Avalanche are saving cap space by the day by having Timmins on the taxi squad, uh, you know, earning his minor league salary. But he is a player, and he's been great these last few games. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's uh, obviously with the way the schedule is going to go, it's just going to be great to be able to spread the love around with the defensemen, especially with how yeah. much you're going to be leaning on them all year long. So being able to distribute minutes here and there to, to everyone is just such a nice problem to have. I do kind of have an idea that I wanted to run by you, and this is something you see a lot more in the NBA. You don't really see it in the NHL. It's not Jimmy Howard, is it? Because every NHL team thought that was a bad idea too no 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 it's not jimmy howard obviously jimmy howard is retiring uh you know we saw that on saturday night headlines friedman and chris johnston talked about it but the idea that i have is the idea of load management and the guy that i'm thinking about do you load manage an eric johnson this season uh i mean i don't know if you really have to because he's not exactly an x factor i'd be more worried about a guy like kale mccarr i mean i know he's young and i know Um, you know, he's probably more than capable of handing the physical side, but he's still getting used to, I mean, he still hasn't even played an 82 game season. So, um, you know, I'd be more worried about making sure he's 100% by the playoffs and, you know, Eric Johnson, whether he's ready to go or not, we have replacements for him, right? Yeah. But I mean, the, the, the reason why, I mean, when you look at somebody like Kale McCarr, it's kind of like Nathan McKinnon, where these are young guys that come to practice every day. They're skilled. They have a lot of energy. And even when the Avalanche do have practices two, three, four days a week, those aren't the guys that are taking maintenance days. 
The players that you see taking days off are your Eric Johnsons, are your Nazem Kadri's, are your guys like Ian Cole who have a lot of miles on their body. And who on this Avalanche team has more miles on his body than an Eric Johnson? I mean, you and I have said this before. Eric Johnson is not going to be a 40-year-old buzzing out there like Chara in Washington now or like a Patrick Marlowe or Joe Thornton. Eric Johnson is a very old 31 years old. And he's got a lot of miles on his body. And we said this a lot during the playoffs. When he's missing from the lineup in the most intense time of the season, it shows. You notice his absence. And I kind of look at that and I think maybe this is the season where an older guy like Eric Johnson, because you have the depth and the wealth in Byram and Timmons, you give him nights off and prepare him for the playoffs. I guess I like that idea because, uh, you know, when it comes playoff time, who would you rather have in the lineup, right? Eric Johnson or one of the guys behind him. But the way I kind of see it is, you know, when you have a friend come over to play hockey, um, you know, when you were younger and you get to use your shiny new awesome stick that you got, but you give your friend the one that, you know, you don't really care if it breaks and it's kind of half broken anyway. That's kind of how I view Eric Johnson, right? If he, you know, I say you just ride him and if something happens to him, you got more than capable replacements. But then at the end of the day, I think about, playoff time and you really want to have your studs going just as long as they're healthy but you know I think maybe this is something we circle back on come the end of the season because who knows what the actual season is going to look like for Eric Johnson yeah and who knows what the actual season is going to look like when May comes around and it's time for the playoffs who knows who's healthy and not you know Connor Timmons can drop like he has in seasons past Ian Cole could drop Ryan Graves even Kale McCarr but it's just an idea that I had, and I think a lot of teams are going to do it. I mean, Chara's probably and likely, even though he's playing 21 minutes a night right now, he's likely going to be load managed in uh, in Washington because they want him for the playoffs. You know, you didn't bring in Zidane Chara to play 56 regular season games. You brought in Zidane Chara to give you that winning pedigree and a six foot nine monster when the stakes are higher and the game is more intense and physical in the playoffs. So it's just kind of an idea that I was thinking of. And I think Jared Bednar likely has already had this conversation or this thought in his mind with his staff, because you do have a wealth of riches on defense this year. And with a player like Johnson, you want him ready in the playoffs, but maybe playing 56 games in 115 nights isn't going to give you a healthy Eric Johnson in the playoffs. So it's just an idea that I kind of had, and I just, you know, wanted to throw it out there. No, I like it, and it's definitely a luxury that the Avalanche have because that just because of how capable the people are behind Eric Johnson or Ian Cole, whoever you need to load manage, there are more than capable guys behind them. So you know, it, not every team has that, and a lot of times you'd be worried about what guys step up to the plate, and uh, the Avalanche just aren't worried about that. So I like the idea. Why not? Why not? Yeah, and I mean, by by the time the end of the regular season comes around, we'll see who's actually healthy. But if you go into the playoffs with, with these eight healthy defensemen, on any given night, you can throw in a combination of six and pretty much have a good lineup. So it's, it's, it's a weapon the Avalanche have never had, especially this new age team, the team that, you know, once Rob Blake and Adam Foote and Ray Bork moved on and and, and that generation of defensemen, they've never really had this before. And it's it's really unique that Eric Johnson is now suddenly this guy you can plug and play rather than the guy on the top pairing with with uh, with Jan Haidar or, or Brad Stewart or Francois Beauchemin, for example. Yeah, let's just kind of hope that the uh, Ryan Graves, Ian Cole pairing, you know, stays <laughs> stays something that uh, the Jared Bednar doesn't use because we saw that in game one wasn't exactly pretty. And we kind of expected no. that, but... 
Yeah, I really like the way Grace played with Gerard because it was very re- similar to the game he plays with Makar, and I don't think he has that with Ian Cole. So I did not see that as a good pairing from the start, and it's why uh, you know the the idea that I had of the defense pairings by the end of the season, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, I said it's going to be Makar Taves, it's going to be Graves Gerard, and then it's going to be Johnson playing with a young Byram or maybe a young Timmins. But it's the fact that you have Graves playing with Gerard, and then Taves is up there playing with Makar. Yeah, that's probably, you know, I think that's your strongest lineup anyway. Probably what you want it to look like heading into playoff time. But that's all we have on the docket. Let's wrap it up and prepare our descent here. And that's with our social media moment of the week, which I know you have prepared from one of our great followers and a a, a great listener, too. He even mentioned how he likes the podcast. So it's not someone we're trying to reel in to start listening to the podcast this time. This is one of our already positioned listeners. We don't do that. What are you talking about? Hey, hey, we're just we're just good at marketing, I guess, right? Good marketing <laughs> minds over here. You, you got to do what you got to do to get your listeners up. So I, I tweeted out during the game, uh, the Avalanche are buzzing now. Heck of a play by Saad, but stopped by Bennington. And coincidentally, that's the play we're talking about where Brandon Saad split the defenseman and it was stopped. Aaron Halverson responded, and it's at Aaron M. Halverson, H-A-L-V-O-R-S-E-N. He said, I want last year's Bennington back. And he tweeted that to me at 8.13 p.m. It's the second period. It's one nothing Avalanche. At 9.06 p.m., he responded back to that very tweet saying, wish granted, I'll thank myself. In 56 minutes from that moment that Brandon Saad was stopped, Bennington surrendered another three goals. It was 4 nothing. He was pulled. Wish granted, I'll thank myself. So I straight up told Aaron, you, sir, are going to get a shout out on the next podcast recording because that was a hell of a tweet. It was awesome. It was just funny to see because I remember seeing his tweet when he sent it to me. I want last year's Bennington back. I sort of saw the notification come come up, but I didn't really do anything with it. I didn't acknowledge it or like it or respond back to him because I was busy tweeting about the game. And then when he came back and said, wish granted, I'll thank myself. As soon as I saw the notification, I was like, oh my God, it's that guy again. And I clicked on it and it was, it was Hell of a tweet. Shout out Aaron Halverson. Uh, Great tweet. Last year's Jordan Bennington did in fact come back. And if you remember from our podcast with CJ a few weeks ago, that's why the St. Louis Blues to me are not going to be a threat because their backup goalie is inexperienced and Jordan Bennington is inconsistent. Yeah, I mean, he's really the X factor. Some nights he can carry the load. Other nights he he does what he did there and gets shelled. So um, maybe you're right. Yeah, maybe St. Louis won't be too much of a threat moving forward. But if that's the case, they got to beat him twice in a two-game set. I don't want to see any more 1-1 splits uh, with the Blues. Yeah, you know, yeah, you, you sort of walked me into a corner there, but I agree. I do agree with that. Uh, before I let you finish up and close up, I'm going to throw one more name out there to that little impromptu game show that I did last week just because this one caught me by even more surprise than Chris Bigra. Then ate at me Pickard, for a couple Nobles. days just so you know. <laughs> I was like, I knew uh, I knew Agazino was in Anaheim. Why would I Aguzino. say that? I knew Hammond was in Minnesota. I choked. Yeah, totally. I choked under pressure. Totally. Well, you're not going to get this one, and I, I, I guarantee you, I pretty much guarantee you're not going to get this one because I saw it and I'm like, wait, what? And it's our good friend who's played with the Arizona Coyotes in the playoffs last year, scored a bunch of goals against the Avs, Brad Richardson. Where did he sign this summer? I have no idea. Yeah, you've got me. Neither did I. I didn't even know he left Arizona. Neither did I. I thought he was still with the Coyotes until I was scrolling through the score last last week or a couple games ago, and I saw that he scored a goal for the Nashville Predators. Man, they just taking all the Avs garbage, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's there now with Rocco Grimaldi and yeah. Matt Duchesne. I'm sure there's somebody else we we're missing too, but yeah, that that's crazy to think about. But um, 
So yeah, yeah, you just lost a seven game series. You went three and three last week, and you just lost game seven. So oh, well, you better be awkward. ready to lose. Oh, go go get swept next week. You better get ready for that. I'm gonna go. You're gonna go zero and four. I'm gonna get you. Let's see. And I'm I'm kind of a nerd with my hockey knowledge. So let's All see. Right, we'll see. But yeah, that brings us to our Mile High Sports three stars of the week. Man, it's been a while, hasn't it? We haven't put those Mile High Sports. Yeah, we, we haven't it's put the three stars. I don't think in for. a while. So that's star number three. We're gonna give it to Philip Grubauer. Not only for getting the bounce back shutout, but he got an assist in the shutout. That's always a goalie's favorite thing to do, even if it's by mistake. <laughs> you love getting on the score sheet. Did you hear his quote? No. Peter Bott, the athletic, asked him after the second game, saying, hey, you got a, you got your second career assist and your first one since your days in Washington, and asked him about that. And Grubauer said, after the first game when we got beat 4-1, to one, I looked at the guys and I said, if you get the puck to me, I'll help you score. And it was <laughs> it was funny. It was, it was a great quote. And... Uh, yeah, shout out to Philip Grubauer. Jared Bednar sort of sang his praises after the first game and said it wasn't his fault, and I agree. Like I said, three of the four goals were the direct results of avalanche turnovers. Mm-hmm. He came out in the second game, and he did what he had to do in the first period. Because if the avalanche trail after that first period, who knows what happens? Grubauer kept them in the game. He was solid. He was safe. He was sound. He's not scrambling out there. He's looked really good. Uh, shout out to Philip because he's going to be, you know, if Bennington's the X factor in St. Louis, well, Philip Grubauer is going to be the X factor on this team. Uh, the Avalanche are going to need him to be a good goalie, and he's done exactly that over the last two games. 100%. And I went to the morning skate before game two, and I could see he had a short memory. You could tell he had already shaken off game yeah. one. He's dialed and, in. Yeah, absolutely. I think he's uh, he's going to be able to carry a good amount of the load and uh, impress people, I think. So I yeah. guess that's, before, that's yet to be seen. Before you move on, uh, did you see Semyon Varlamov's injury yesterday against the Islanders? No, is he injured now? I did see his his he... first game shutout, and that's when I was thinking, oh man, we let we let the wrong guy go. But if he's injured again, I take that back. It's such a bummer because this isn't this isn't even like uh, an, an an injury prone type of injury. It was in the second game. He took a shot in warmups from Cal Clutterbuck, and it hit him right on the collarbone, right below the helmet, and he kind of like was taken down by it, and like. He went straight down to the ice. It hit him, I'm guessing, in the neck. And it was just a routine shot during the warm-ups. Uh, and, you know, he had to come out of the game or he had to come out of the come off the ice. And then Ilya Sorokin had to unexpectedly start his first game. And the Rangers shut them out 5 nothing in that second game. So hope Varlamov is healthy and comes back because that's a, that was a bummer and it was hard yeah. to watch. Funny you say that because I remember uh, when I was at the practice before game one, the exact same thing happened to Philip Grubauer. He took a puck to the collarbone, dropped like a bag of rocks. And I was like, uh-oh, yeah, this is bad news. But he popped right back up and was obviously just, you know, yeah. maybe a little scared more than injured. But, you know, I got scared for a second because that would have just been the avalanche's luck. But that brings us to star number two, and that's Gabe Landeskog for the ability to finish that he displayed in game two there. Not just putting himself in really good goal-scoring positions in quiet areas, but putting them home too you know that's kind of the biggest hurdle of, of goal scorers you could you can always put yourself in the big good goal scoring positions but you got to finish and that's the hardest part you know and that's what Joe Sackick always says even either you got it or you don't Landeskog brought it and he's you know finding ways to finish and you know just bringing his a game I love to see it in, in game two and I'm glad you mentioned him because this is a great time to shout him out for scoring his 200th career goal. Congratulations to Gabe Landeskog. He still has more career goals than Nathan McKinnon, obviously drafted two years after him, but McKinnon's at 191, so he's slowly catching him. 
but I, I agree. The The cool thing that I like about Gabe Landeskog's game is I know he's still 28, but for the last three years, I've kind of been watching him because Gabe Landeskog is the type of player and plays the type of game that when his game drops off, it's going to be a massive drop. It's going to be like Dustin Brown in LA when he went from a 70-point guy to scoring five goals or whatever it was. It's going to be like when Mike Richards was in Philadelphia and then when he was in LA as well. His game is going to drop, and and right now he's not showing any signs of that. He's not showing any wear and tear on his body, even though he probably has a lot of wear and tear on his body. 28 years old, he's still out there. If this was an 82-game season, I would not expect anything less than 30, 35 goals and 30, 35 assists from Gabe, which is you know all you can ask for from your captain and leader. So shout-out to Gabe Landeskog. It was a hell of a game he played. Uh, nice goal there to beat Bennington 5-hole off of a just a ridiculously sick pass from Miko Rantanen from behind the net. Yeah, and you know, you know, Miko and McKinnon have a lot of the scoring pressure on their shoulders. So when Gabe Landeskog steps in, scores not only the first but the third goal of the game as well. Um, you know, that's just good to see that he's taking that weight off the shoulders of those guys, and then those guys go and score their goals too. So you know, when one guy's slacking, the other guy's picking each other up, and and that's what you like to see from that top line. So going to star number one. We're going to give it to Andre Burakovsky, and that's because it seems like he really brought it in both games. You know, he scored in game one, gets bumped down to uh, the second line in game two, and still scores that game two. Doesn't doesn't let hit doesn't let it get to his uh, you know mental side of the game. It didn't let him affect it. So I am starting to slur my words left and right. So we got to start wrapping this up. Shout yeah, out Andre Burakovsky. Shout out Andre Burakovsky. He played a team low 11 minutes and something seconds in that second game, but obviously that was just a matter of having a team that was up five, six, seven, nothing in the third period where you can you know overplay your bottom two lines. Burakovsky is a streaky scorer, and and to have two goals in two games means he's starting on the right side of being a streaky scorer, which is scoring a lot of goals in a lot of bunches. Uh, and we've mentioned this before. Every time he scores, it's not a dirty goal in the crease. It's a snipe. It's a beautiful shot, and both mm-hmm. of his goals were like that, especially the one in the game in the first game. Yeah, the, the one in the second game was coast to coast. How often did you see yeah. that? Like, yeah, he was exactly. on a power play, but he took it from end to end and just sniped yeah. it. Like that's hard to do these days. Yeah, and 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 he just he he has a knack for scoring the nice goal, and that's hard to do in a league that's become pretty much a, a, a third line grinders league. That's what the NHL is. That's what we say of Sidney Crosby. He's one of the best players in the history of the game. He's pretty much a skilled third liner is the type of game he plays. So yeah, to, to be able to score his goals the way that he does is awesome. And the, the fact that he's clicking on the power play with two power play goals is also awesome because he's one of those guys that's on the second PP unit. Yep, absolutely. So that's a good place to stop. Uh, I guess you know, we'll be back. I think we're going to try to make it back after the King series, but they do play back to back there it, it, Thursday and Friday. Yeah. We're right? going to try for an early Friday podcast and we'll see how it goes. Uh, we'll hopefully get that to you guys after the Avalanche sweep the LA Kings. It'll be a quick one, at least. You know, if we're going to get it out Friday morning, expecting people to listen to it by Friday night, we got to give them, you know, a brief one just so they can squeeze it in there. So, uh, you know, that being said, this one was long. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it starts your week off right and uh, you're feeling good about the Avalanche season so far. Uh, you know, thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks for making it this far. Bless your heart if you did. And hockey's for everyone. We out you. Yeah.